Well, Father, we thank you tonight that we don't live in Saudi Arabia or Egypt or Syria or Jordan or Iraq or Iran or Yemen or any of those other Arab states because if we did, we would be under great duress in meeting here tonight and we would only do it under threat. But we thank you, Lord, that we can come here after work and we can... uh, open our scriptures and we can hear from you and that we can see guys that are like-minded and are kindred spirits. And that is a great privilege and it is a wonderful thing to have this freedom. We understand that many Christians around the world don't have that. So we want to thank you that we are enjoying that and we understand that it came at a great price. And we also understand that it's very tenuous and it's very fragile and that it could be easily taken from us. And we would pray, Lord, that you would work in such a way so that those freedoms that we enjoy would be preserved and that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren could have those same freedoms. But we are noticing, Lord, that those of us who bow before you and hold up your word, we are becoming the new enemy in this nation. And uh, we are noticing that uh, we are hated. But that's because we love you. And you told us that would happen. So as lines are being drawn, even in this nation, we pray that you would give us the courage to stand for what is right. We pray that you'd give us the courage to stand for what is true. We pray that you would give us the courage to exercise our freedoms while we have them. We have been blessed in this nation. We enjoy so much. And we understand and we acknowledge tonight that all of these good things come from your hand. So we say thank you. We just don't do that at Thanksgiving, although that's very appropriate. We say it tonight. We say thank you what you have done for the good things you have given to us Israel got in trouble when they began to murmur they got in trouble when they began to complain don't let us do that so tonight Lord with grateful hearts we acknowledge that you're there we acknowledge that you're great and we're not we acknowledge that you know all things and we know very little We acknowledge that you have all wisdom and we don't. So we're here to learn from you. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from thy law. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges. Tonight we're going to be focusing really on Judges 9. We'll touch on Judges 8. So much of the Bible is history. I'm always interested in in looking at the amount of pages in a Bible that is devoted to what we call the Old Testament. And in my Bible, right here, that's, that's the Old Testament. That pretty much is history. 
it's the history of a nation. Uh, it's a history of a man that God called out and said, I will make you a great nation. Um, it uh, is, is the history of, of the chapters of their lives, this nation of Israel. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these things, these things in the Old Testament, it says these things were written for our instruction. Uh, there, there are lessons to be learned from history. Woodrow Wilson said, A nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do. We are trying to do a futile thing if we do not know where we have come from or what we have been about. Uh, to understand one's purpose, you have to understand where you've come from. That's true of individuals, that's true of nations. Uh, we're all connected. Uh, everybody in here has a family history. Everybody in here has a family tree. Uh, everybody in here, and some of you guys have been able to trace your family genealogy back a ways. And, and, and why do we do that? Because we're fascinated with who those people were that came before us. Our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, great-great-great-great, all the way up, as far back as we can go. I was reading this week about some technology companies that are doing some remarkable things with DNA. And uh, there are three or four firms now that you can sign up with and send them a sample of your DNA, and they will be able to track uh, your family genealogy and tell you where you originally came from on the face of the earth. It's just staggering stuff. Uh, and why is it that we're even interested in that? Because, because we, we're connected. Uh, we're, you know, our lives are just a long chain. Uh, we, we all have a genealogy. What's a genealogy? A, a genealogy is a family chain. And uh, in, in my family, Mary and I, we're just the latest link in a very long chain. And our three kids, they'll get married and they'll have kids, and they'll be the next link. And then there's another link. But there's a link that came before and a link that came before. And, a link. and see, we're part of something. That's why Wilson says, a nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do. In the book of Judges, I want to go back to chapter 2, because it gives us a little bit of the history. And just to refresh our memories, Judges is a description of a 300-year history of Israel, which was not a good section of time in in their memoirs, if you would. Uh, it records a downward spiral. And if you look at Joshua 2, verse 6, it says, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel, went each to his inheritance to possess the land. They divided up the land, and they're going to go live on the land. That was the whole purpose of going into the promised land. That was the whole purpose of coming out of Egypt and God dividing the Red Sea. But because of the unbelief of 10 of the 12 spies, they had to wander for 40 years. And then a new generation comes up. And Deuteronomy was written to the next generation. And then they're going to go into the land, but Moses, his time is up. He dies. Joshua's going to take him into the land. And they're finally going to get the inheritance. Uh, 
that's what the book of Joshua is all about, each tribe getting their land. So when you get to Joshua 2, verse 6 in Judges, um, he dismisses the people and they go to their inheritance. Uh, then you look at uh, verse 8, then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him. Now look at verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. In other words, another generation or two shows up, and they are completely cut off from the great things that God had done for their grandfathers. Now, that, that's, that, that's what Woodrow Wilson was talking about. A nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do. So suddenly you got a generation, and these guys are without purpose. They're apathetic. They're, they're just simply existing. That's all they're doing is existing. That's pretty sad. My son Josh, uh, last week, got a call that a um, kid he'd gone to uh, junior high school with had been killed that morning in a car wreck. He'd put a car into a tree about 5 o'clock in the morning. So Josh went to the funeral and a bunch of, obviously, you know, other friends were there. And, and, and Josh said, you know, Dad, I haven't been to a lot of funerals, but that, that was the saddest thing I've ever seen. I mean, it was just flat out sad. Because, um, number one, it was in a church that doesn't believe the gospel. And the guy, the, the, the pastor got up there. I mean, it was like the sucker was just taking his check and, you know, saying the stuff. And I mean, no heart, no passion, no, no, no truth. The statement was made that the gospel, is, the gospel is, is that we love one another. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's, that's liberal crap is what that is. Uh, the gospel is that Jesus is God and that he existed as God, but that he laid aside his privileges, he came to this earth, he was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, he went to the cross to pay for your sin and mine, he died, he was buried, three days later, he literally rose from the dead, after appearing to the brethren, appeared to some over 500 at one time, he ascended to the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father where he lives forever to make intercession for us and one day he's coming back. And those who trust in him can have their sins forgiven and can find purpose and meaning in this life and also have a purpose for the next life. Now that's the gospel. The gospel is not that we love one another. So there wasn't a whole lot to say and then the opportunity was given for different people to get up and talk about this young man who had died and what was so sad was that Josh said you know it was just really sad because there wasn't a whole lot to say the best anybody could say well he was a good guy but uh, pretty much a wasted life really didn't contribute a whole lot Real sweet mom, very passive father, um, tough kid 
tough to get along with, very contentious, very rebellious. He's gone. And when they opened it up, there wasn't a whole lot that anybody had to say. That's pretty sad. And then Josh had all these kids I hadn't seen in years that I'd gone to school with who were living just like that guy. They said, you know, they said all the words and they said all the stuff and they'll go outside and they light up and, you know, they're talking about where they're going to party that night. Everybody's doing the same thing. There's got to be more to life than that. But see, when a generation comes along that doesn't know its past and doesn't know its history, they just wander aimlessly. They just simply exist, and they waste their lives. Now, that's what's happening in the book of Judges. There is this downward spiral that continues, um, that continues to occur. And there's a reason God put the book of Judges in the Bible. It's because there are lessons for those of us who are walking the face of the earth currently. There, there are principles in, in this book. There are principles in this book for individuals, and there are principles in this book for, for nations. Um, Wilson said, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know what you're about. You don't know your purpose. Um, we're going to get into Judges 9, but I want to do, do, uh, do a little history. Last week, I gave you some stuff from David Barton. Well, I want to give you some more stuff because we don't ever hear this stuff. And we need a historical context to understand where we are today. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 12.32, it speaks of the men who joined David. It says the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So many of us today don't understand our times. And the reason we don't understand our times is that we don't understand history. We don't understand where it is that we have come from. So I'm, I'm going to give you some pages here tonight on this. And, and what I'm doing by doing this is I'm just setting up to go right into Judges 9 and look at this next guy who has a whole lot to say to us and a guy who quite frankly would fit really well into modern day American culture. Um, he was a leader, but he was not an authentic leader. He was a synthetic leader. He looked like a leader, but he wasn't. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, in, 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 Barton's, uh, in, in Barton's book, if you'd hold my calls, that'd be good. In, in Barton's book, he, he's given a history. The book is called the role of pastors and Christians in civil government. Now, you know what's interesting about this? Many believers today think we have no role. But that's because we're disconnected historically from what believers did in the early days of this nation. So let me just jump in to show you the role and the influence that Christians and pastors had. He said many states began their legislative sessions. He's, taught, he's got a whole section in here on what he calls annual sermons. And when we met with Barton over there at his office a few weeks ago, uh, he's got a whole uh, file folder, a file drawer that he pulls open, and he's got all these sermons that were printed in the 16 and 1700s. Now, to print a ser today we print a sermon, it's no big deal. I mean, you make a tape, you make a 
The Xerox copy, that's no big deal. For them to print a sermon back then was a big deal. I mean, to print anything was a big deal. They would have what they called annual sermons to remind believers of certain things annually that were important. One of the things where annual sermons were preached was at the beginning of legislative sessions in each state. Barton says many states began their legislative session by inventing, uh, inventing, by inviting a minister to preach a sermon addressing the biblical principles regarding lawmaking. Now, wouldn't that be refreshing? The Bible truly offers much guidance for this topic, for not only is God the great lawgiver, but many heroes of our faith were also lawgivers, including Moses, Joseph, and Daniel. And then he delineates some of these different annual sermons that were given. He says, one sermon topic was a voice of warning to Christians on the ensuing election of a president of the United States. In earlier generations, American ministers stood in the pulpit and called candidates and parties by name, set forth their positions, compared them to the Bible, and then advised that a Christian should or should not vote for a candidate or party based on what the candidate said compared with what the Bible said. Funny how things change. Today, this time, was there an IRS back then? I don't think so. Today, this type of sermon might make many listeners and churches uncomfortable, but it shouldn't. Not only was this a traditional practice of American pulpits, it was also a traditional practice set forth in the scriptures. Now follow this. Consider how often God sent his ministers either to interface with or to confront civil leaders. Elijah with Ahab and Jezebel, Samuel with Saul, Nathan and Gad with David, Isaiah with Manasseh, Jeremiah with Josiah, and so many others. There certainly is no biblical model where God has his ministers remain silent with civil leaders or about civil issues. The church speaking into the civil arena was a long-standing practice in America, as was the practice of ministers serving directly in the legislature. In fact, it was Thomas Jefferson himself who encouraged the lifting of restrictions against ministers and clergy that had been imposed in his own state of Virginia. Jefferson said, I observe in the Virginia Constitution an abridgment of a right that I do not approve. It is the incapacitation of a clergyman from being elected. He said, that's wrong. Now, maybe you're a little uncomfortable with this. Well, why are you uncomfortable? Because of the culture in which we live. Now, catch this. Thomas Jefferson wished to see clergymen possess the same rights as others. Today, however, this is not the case in the area of free speech, nor has it been since 1954, when a U.S. senator became responsible for enacting a policy that treated nonprofit organizations, including churches, differently. He had been criticized for his political affiliations and his private business dealings, and not liking that criticism, he added a rider to an appropriation bill in the U.S. Senate stipulating for the first time that a 501c3 organization, and churches are 501c3 organizations, must stay out of the political arena. Few Christians realize that the current restrictions on free speech in the pulpit are of recent origin, but both American law books and early American sermons clearly demonstrate that such is the case. So one guy made one shift that altered everything. And by the way, there are some committed Christian congressmen that are working to reverse that right now. The historical record is clear. The church helped shape the way that early America approached the issues of the day. 
The nation learned the relevancy of God's word to every aspect of life. It is not surprising then that, as, that the scriptures and expositors of the scriptures had such a profound impact on the founding of our government and on its documents. We don't hear this too often. But Christians played a remarkable role of influence in the formation um, of this country. You guys still with me? Are you? Can I go a little longer? Because I'm setting up Judges 9. Okay? You need a cheeseburger or anything? You okay? All right. All right, here we go. Since so many of the ideas, David Barton writes, since so many of the ideas that found application in our government were taken from the Bible, it is not surprising that John Adams had identified Christians and ministers as being so influential in American independence. Nearly four decades after the American Revolution, he reaffirmed this position, declaring the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. That's why I prayed tonight, thank you, Lord, that we don't live in Saudi Arabia, or Yemen, or Egypt, or Iraq. Now, we're trying to make some changes over there. But why don't, we have, why, why don't they have the freedoms? Well, because they got a wrong foundation. If your foundation is the Koran, you're not going to have liberty. Here's what Adam said. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Now, I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, wasn't this guy a president of the United States? I think he was. So, he's called a deist. Yeah, well, we're going to get into that, if you stay with me, okay? Significantly, not just John Adams, but many other founding fathers and early American political leaders also declared that America was guided by or founded on Christian principles. Among those making such declarations were Elias Boudinot, a president of Congress during the Revolution, and, signer of, and signers of the Declaration, Charles Carroll, John Hancock, Benjamin Rush, Stephen Hopkins, and Samuel Adams. Also citing Christian principles as foundational to constitutions, uh, as foundational are constitutional signers George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Rufus King, John Dickinson, and Roger Sherman. Others including uh, Samuel Chase, a signer of the Declaration, and a U.S. Supreme Court Justice, uh, made similar declarations about Christian principles in America. That would include original Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay, Justice jo Joseph Story, Justice James Kent, Zephaniah Swift, author of America's first legal text, and the U.S. Supreme Court itself, not to mention the U.S. Congress, as well as numerous state Supreme Courts and state legislatures, who said what? Who said that Christian principles were preeminent in America. And then he goes down and he lists, all, I, I mean, he just lists them and lists them and lists them. Um, other famous Americans who claimed that America was a Christian nation or was built on Christian principles included leaders such as William Eaton, leader of America's first conflict following the American Revolution, Daniel Webster, the great defender of the constitutions, U.S. presidents declaring that America was a Christian nation or that it was founded on Christian principles included John Quincy Adams, Abraham Lincoln. All these are footnoted, by the way. 
Woodrow Wilson, Zachary Taylor, Harry Truman, Andrew Jackson, William McKinley, Herbert Hoover, Teddy Roosevelt, many others. Educational leaders who taught students in classic American textbooks that Christianity was the basis of our country and its government included notables such as Noah Webster, the schoolmaster to America, Jedediah Morris, the father of American geography, and William McGuffey of the famous McGuffey readers. All of these and so many more founding fathers, leaders, educators, and official departments of government declared that America was a Christian nation or that it was influenced by or built on Christian principles by Christian leaders. Did you get this in high school? It was because of this strong Christian faith that the founders were willing to... Now, this is wild. This is wild. It was because of this strong Christian faith that the founders were willing to welcome those of other faiths to America. The founders knew the truth of Christianity. They believed that it would prevail on its own merits without the need for force or coercion. If it's true, it's true. Now, see, that doesn't happen in Muslim countries because they're threatened by Christianity. That doesn't happen in, when, when you look at the face of the earth, and, and, and this is why it's going to be real interesting, what we're trying to do over in Iraq, we're trying to establish a democracy. And, and that's a wonderful thing. But only time will tell if that can be successful or not, because in order to have a democracy, well, what do our documents say? Our documents talk about the fact that individuals have certain rights. Rights that are, and where do these rights come from? That are bestowed upon us, endowed by our creator. Well, you can't say that. But, that's, but see, that's the way it works. So in order to have a democracy, you've got to have some kind of biblical foundation. Uh, you, you just can't set it up. You've got to have something that's going to underpin it and it's going to hold it. This tolerance, again, you guys still with me? We're looking at history. We're looking at where we've come from, okay? This is what they forgot to do in Judges. This is why they got in trouble. This tolerance for other faiths and religions, however, did not negate nor alter the fact that America was founded by Christians on Christian principles. In fact, in 1854, following an extensive one-year investigation, the U.S. Congress succinctly declared, catch this, had the people during the revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, but not any one denomination. In this age, there can be no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. The Congress declared that in 1854. Half a century later, in 1892, the U.S. Supreme Court also conducted a thorough review of American history. After citing more than 60 historical precedents, the court concluded there was no dissonance in these declarations. There was a universal language pervading them all, having one meaning. They affirm and reaffirm that this is a religious nation. This is a Christian nation nation. That's the Supreme Court in 1892. But then Barton says, and now do you understand why some religious leaders on the left 
recently wrote Senator Frisk and asked him not to allow David Barton to, cons to be able to lead a historical tour through the Capitol. Barton writes, but today's pseudo-historians not willing to let truth or historical facts stand in the way of their personal secularist convictions proclaim just the opposite, asserting that neither our nation nor its leaders were influenced by Christianity. One article declares our founding presidents were not Christians. Another similarly announces the founding fathers were not Christians. Another proclaims that the signers of the declarations were enemies of Christ. The LA Times heralds America's unchristian beginnings with an inset box declaring the founding fathers, most despite, despite the preachings of our pious right, were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. Well, then Barton goes through about three pages to show that wasn't true. Uh, he has a picture. You've seen this picture of the uh, signers of the Declaration. And he says, um, in the Declaration, the two most famous founders that anybody can recognize are Jefferson and Franklin. But they can't identify the other guys. And he goes through and mentions their names. America seems to know nothing about these other founders. And then he points out of the 56 signers of the Declaration, more than half were educated in schools established for the purpose of training ministers for the gospel. And they received what today would be considered degrees from seminaries or Bible schools, half, or 56 of the signers. Many of the founders also served as ministers or were active in Christian service. Uh, and then he even goes on and talks about Franklin and Jefferson, who would be the least religious. Uh, Franklin not only drafted a statewide prayer proclamation for his own state of Pennsylvania, but he also recommended Christianity in the state's public schools. I'll go for a guy like that. He also desired to start a colony in Ohio with Reverend George Whitfield to facilitate the, introdu the introduction of pure religion among the heathen in order to show the Indians a better sample of Christianity than they commonly see in our Indian traders. This guy was for preaching the gospel. Then he mentions, uh, he mentions Jefferson. Not only did he recommend that the great seal of the United States depict a Bible story and include the word God in the national motto, but President Jefferson also negotiated a federal treaty with the Caucasian Indians in which he included direct federal funding to pay for Christian ministers to work for, with the Indians and for the building of a church in which the Indians could worship. Furthermore, Jefferson closed presidential documents with the appellation in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, thus invoking Jesus Christ into official government document. You didn't get this in high school, did you? Are your kids getting in public school? Give me a, let me give you one more shot here. Despite the rich heritage of Christian faith and expression in America that the strong and the strong foundation that it has provided for our country, things have begun to change dramatically. Hundreds of years of religious freedoms have been erased by courts in only a few decades. While there have been scores of horrible rulings, perhaps none is more egregious than the ruling in a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, Jane Doe versus Santa Fe Independent School District. <clears throat> Santa Fe is a small rural town outside of Houston, Texas. It has a long tradition of prayer graduations and prayer at athletic events, such as football games. Yet a handful of students in that school were offended by the practice. They did not want anyone else praying. So they went to a federal judge, asked him to force everyone to stop praying. The judge ruled that he would allow prayer to continue at graduation and athletic events. 
but only if students prayed the right words when they prayed. He warned, and here's a quote. The court will allow that prayer to be, uh, the court will allow that prayer to be a typical non-denominational prayer, which can refer to God or the Almighty or that sort of thing. The prayer must not refer to Jesus or anyone else. And make no mistake, the court is going to have a United States Marshal in attendance at the graduation. If any student offends this court, meaning the judge, that student will be summarily arrested and will face up to six months incarceration in the Galveston County Jail for contempt of court. Anybody who violates these orders, no kidding, that's what the guy said. Anybody who violates these orders, no kidding, is going to wish that he or she had died as a child when this court gets through with it. And some of us are thinking, well, wait a minute, Steve. Now, what about the separation of church or state? Church and state. There's no such thing. It appears in no document of our nation. The phrase, the separation of church or state, came from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association. They had heard a rumor that a national church was going to be established in America, like the Anglicans in England. And he wrote them back, saying, there's no such thing. In America, there is a wall of separation between church and state, meaning we will never establish a national denomination. So I, 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 I'm, I'm not remembering the court case, but I think it was Blackman that went back and pulled that out of a personal letter from Thomas Jefferson, and that became the foundational principle by which all this other nonsense comes from. Well, there's more, but I don't want to depress you. You're already depressed. Uh, oh, you know, there is one more. There is one more. And I'll close. This, this is it. But this, this really sets us up. Um, commenting on this court case I just read, he said, this really obviously angers most citizens, and the common response is, What's wrong with this judge? Can he read the Constitution? The Constitution says nothing about separation of church and state. That phrase appears nowhere in the Constitution. It was a policy enacted by the Supreme Court in 1947 in its efforts to compartmentalize faith and segregate it from public life. Can't the judge read the Constitution? Sentiments like this reflect a basic misunderstanding. Most citizens believe that the Constitution governs America, but it does not. Now catch this. In fact, while the Founding Fathers were framing the Constitution at the Constitutional Convention, there was a discussion over what the impact of the Constitution would be in limiting the misconduct of public officials. The discussion was best summed up by Delegate John Francis Mercer, who declared, it is a great mistake to suppose that the paper we are about to propose will govern the United States. In other words, it was a major error to believe that the Constitution governs America. He continued, it is the men whom it will bring into the government and interests they have in maintaining it that are to govern them. The paper will only mark out the mode and the form. Men are the substance and must do the business. In short, the Constitution gives citizens the power to elect leaders, but if the wrong kind of leaders are elected, the Constitution will be absolutely worthless in their hands, as it was in the hands of the judge in Santa Fe, Texas, and so many other judges and elected officials. 
The same lesson has been taught in the scriptures long before it was applied in America. Was there any nation in the history of the world that had better civil laws than Israel? Certainly not, for God Almighty had given their laws. Yet how good were their God-inspired, God-given laws when they had rulers such as Ahab and Jezebel or Manasseh or Jeroboam or Rehoboam or other wicked leaders? Despite the fact that their laws are from God himself, those superb laws were completely disregarded under corrupt and deficient leaders. The founders understood this, and one of the most frequently quoted Bible principles invoked by the founders is the one set forth in Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. The key to good government is not how good our documents are or how good our laws are, rather it is how good our leaders are. In America, whether the righteous rule or whether the wicked rule depends totally upon the will of the voters, we have our choice. I like that phrase. It's the key to good government is not how good our documents are, rather it's how good our leaders are, which leads us to Judges 9. You thought we'd never get there. You know what John Calvin said? John Calvin said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Judges 9. Actually, let's start at Judges 8. Because last week we were with a guy named Gideon. And Gideon uh, is the most famous judge uh, other than Samson. Uh, Gideon gets more print. He gets more verses than any other judge in the book of Judges. But what's going to happen here is that after he has some great victories and then he has a great compromise, when you get into Judges 8.28, it says, So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. These were the guys that had been oppressing Israel. But under Gideon, God gave him victory. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the, in the days of Gideon. If you recall the book of Judges, uh, There'll be oppression, and then God will raise up a judge. He'll raise up a deliverer. Uh, the deliverer will lead the nation to fight the oppressing nation. God will give them peace, and the land will be undisturbed, usually 40 years, sometimes 80 years. Now, that's what we have here. This is the last period of peace in the book of Judges. This is the last time they're going to have peace because they keep spiraling so far out of control. It says, then Jerubbaal and Jerubbaal is Gideon. That's his other name. Uh, it means um, let Baal contend. Baal was the false god. Uh, in other words, it, it's sort of a slap in the face of Baal. Uh, he took on Baal, and Jerubbaal means let Baal contend. Contend with who? With Yahweh. You think Baal's true? Let him contend with God. That's what Elijah said on Mount Carmel when they brought the prophets. Remember that? Did the sacrifices? Let, let's see who's God. Let's see who's calling the shots. So when you see Jeroboam, that's Gideon. He went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons. He was a busy guy who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine also had concubines. His concubine was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash and Oprah of the Abizrites. And it came, then it came about, as, now catch this, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals. This guy, they, they'd no more 
They'd, they'd no more had the service. They'd no more put the casket in the ground. They'd no more been over at the house, you know, having fried chicken, and they're worshiping Baal again. Now catch this. Look at verse 34. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done in Israel. Now here's where it gets interesting. Because Gideon, a good guy, for the most part, passes off the scene. The people immediately start the downward spiral again. Uh, leaders can only do so much. Leaders can have a great influence. But you see, every person has to decide in their heart what they're going to do with the Lord. And a lot of times leaders can sway us, and a lot of times leaders can inspire us, but... Um, it comes down to what's in your heart and what's in your gut. So suddenly now you've got a leadership vacuum, okay? And, and we're going to see the condition of the nation again. Now, we're going to meet this guy, Abimelech, who's one of his sons, who's, who's an illegitimate son, if you will. Now look at verse 9. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. Which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubbaal, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? And also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. Let me just real quick tell you about this guy. This guy desperately wanted to be in charge. This guy desperately wanted to be king. Now, this was before kings. This was in the period of the judges. Uh, a lot of people look at Abimelech and say, oh, he was one of the judges. No, he wasn't. The judges were called by God. The judges were appointed by God. God didn't call this guy to be a judge. This guy just had a lust for power. He had a desire for power. He, he wanted to lead. Last week, we talked about pride, I think. Did we talk about mushrooms last week in here? There are good kinds of there's good mushrooms and there are bad mushrooms. And you've got to know the difference. Uh, there's a good kind of pride, and there's a bad kind of pride. Your son does something, he takes initiative, he helps someone that's in difficulty, you're proud of your son. But there's a bad kind of pride where you swell up and you think you're great and you think everything you have is because of what you've done. That's a bad kind of pride. Um, ambition is the same way. There's a good kind of ambition, and there's a bad kind of ambition. Uh, the good kind of ambition is... Um, an ambition where you want to use your gifts and you want to use your abilities and you want to contribute to someone. You want your life to count. We, we all want our lives to count. We don't want to waste our lives. We, we want to have an impact on other people. We, we want to do something significant. Now, that's a good ambition. Turn with me to James chapter 3. Because as there's just also a, a good ambition, there is also a wrong kind of ambition. In James chapter 3, verse 13, James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. Now catch this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, see in James he says, if any of you, in James 1, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who will give to all men liberally without reproach. You get stuck in life, you're not sure what to do, 
Say, Lord, would you give me your wisdom? And God will give you his wisdom. He'll give you supernatural wisdom. Now, in contrast to that in verse 15, this wisdom, the selfish ambition and the bitter jealousy, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. Now, catch this. It is earthly, natural, and demonic. There is a selfish ambition that in its very nature is earthly as opposed to heavenly. It is natural instead of supernatural. It is demonic instead of godly. And it's an ambition. There are people who are driven by selfish ambition. And the whole purpose of that ambition is to control. You see, good ambition wants to contribute. Selfish ambition wants to control. A good ambition wants to serve. Selfish ambition wants to be served. Uh, it goes on and says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. In our history, we have had some great leaders, and we've had some poor leaders. Uh, we have had leaders who reluctantly served. Uh, our nation was in such desperate straits that basically George Washington was offered a situation where he could be a benevolent dictator of the United States. Basically, they would have made him king, but he rejected it. You know what George Washington wanted to do? George Washington just wanted to go to Mount Vernon and farm. He loved that place. He wanted to develop it. He wanted to, he wanted to develop new lands. He was interested in agriculture. He was interested in crops. He was interested in breeding cattle. He loved that stuff. He didn't want to be king. He didn't want to be president. But he knew the nation needed him, and so what he did was he agreed to serve. It really what it, 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 he didn't want the public limelight. He wanted he wanted to be home every night. He wanted to be out there working the soil. He loved that stuff. Why is he so revered? Because because the guy sacrificed. Why is Lincoln revered? We, we've got some great presidents. Uh, they weren't there on a power grab. They were there to serve. They were there to contribute. But we look in our history, and we, we, I'm going to tell you something, we got some reprobates. And the reason they're reprobates is that they weren't there to contribute. They were there to control. What is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is the need to lead. Selfish ambition is, is a desire for power. Selfish ambition is a desire for prestige. Selfish ambition is a desire for position. That's what selfish ambition is. And this guy, Abimelech, God didn't say, Abimelech, I want you to be the deliverer and judge. God never says a word to this guy. This guy is full of selfish ambition. There is a power vacuum when Gideon dies, and this sucker moves quickly. I mean, this guy goes to New Hampshire and he goes to Iowa as quickly as he can get there in order to gain support for his candidacy. You think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. Now he goes to Shechem. Now his father was a Jew. His mother was a Canaanite. So he goes to all of his relatives and, and catch this guy. In verse 2, he's got everybody gathered together. His family says, which is better for you, that 70 men? Who are the 70 men? They're the sons of Gideon. That 70 men, all the sons of Jerubbabel, 
rule over you or that one man rule over you. Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our relative. And then in verse 4, you have the first pack in the Bible. You have the first political action committee. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal-berith, from which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. So he's getting his campaign team together. So you've got to raise some money because you've got to have advanced men. You've got to have you know, war rooms. You've got to have guys that are working with the press. I mean, here it is, guys. It's right here. Now, if you think this guy wasn't uh, motivated by power, and if you think this guy wasn't motivated by selfish ambition, if you think this guy wasn't motivated by greed, uh, you don't see anything here that this guy wanted to serve. This guy wanted to be served. He wanted to be number one. Uh, what was it Lord Acton said? Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. I think last week we mentioned that in, in Barton's book, he talks about the fact that the founding fathers were very, very aware of what Jeremiah said about the human heart. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. And they weren't going to put power in one man. Uh, and what is the theme of the book of Judges? Every man does what is right in his own eyes. You see? Selfish ambition is the need to lead. Selfish ambition is the need to be in charge. Selfish ambition is the need for prestige. Selfish ambition is the need for position. Um, when you see a downward spiral of a nation, See, these guys lost their connection with God. What's happening to us? We're losing our connection with God. Now, have we been given rights? Do we have rights? The answer is yes. Now, according to the documents, which were influenced, I got it, Lou, thanks, which were influenced by Samuel Locke, who was a believer and a Christian theologian who influenced the founding fathers, um, the rights came from God. So we are in, the, the, the documents say we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. So we acknowledge those rights come from God. But in recent years, we've had some judges that have discovered some rights that none of us saw in there before. Now, anyone remember some of these new rights that have recently been discovered? Give, give me some of the new rights. What is it? The right to privacy, right to abortion, which is a right to choice, reproductive choice. Yeah. What, what's another one? Yeah, but civil rights, civil rights are, are, are in the Constitution. Which one? Gay rights, homosexual rights. Yeah. What, what's another one? Animal rights. Yeah, right to free access to birth control. Yeah, well, see, we. In other words, there are all. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's a, um, the one that Kennedy just presided over. The sodomy one was it was wiped out. 
Well, see, there's, there's, all, there's, there's rights to everything. And, and basically, when, when they wiped out the sodomy law, you know, you've got guys now in Utah that are suing on, on polygamy, saying, you don't have any right to tell me what I can do. Because you basically wiped out any basis for morality whatsoever. You see. So what we have developed, we've got a system where people full of selfish ambition who are unaccountable and who do not answer anybody uh, basically uh, have become tyrants. And they're fueled by selfish ambition. You can't have leaders like that without it affecting a nation. Did you guys see the article in the Dallas Morning News a few weeks ago written by this uh, high school girl who's editor of her high school paper? And she was basically writing about what's really going on in the high schools. Um, hey, parents, you need to wake up because your daughter may have signed a pledge to wait until she's married. But here's what's going on. Kids are, kids are having parties, and at those parties, uh, they have what they call trains. And what a train is, a train is guys will line up, and a girl uh, will have oral sex with 15 or 20 guys. But, but see, that's not sex. And that's not immoral. That's not sexual immorality. This generation of high school kids does not think that oral sex is immoral. Now, where did they hear that? <laughs> you know where they heard it. They heard it from selfish ambition. They heard it from a reprobate. That's where they heard it. Now, and once again, guys, I'm trying to be subtle here tonight. <laughs> but you understand, you understand that there is a more, I had a, I had a pastor a couple weeks ago. I did a conference and we were having lunch afterwards. He said, I didn't, he said, we were having lunch. He goes, I didn't realize you were so political. I said, I'm not political at all. He said, you're not? I said, no. I said, why would you say I'm political? Well, because in the course of the conference, I had talked about homosexual marriage as being unbiblical. Uh, I talked about abortion being unbiblical. Um, I said, well, those aren't political issues. Those are biblical issues. They just happen to be discussed in the political. I didn't say who to vote for, did I? No. I didn't show up here with a bumper sticker on my car. No. Well, see, you've been conned, man. You think those are political? Those are biblical issues. So we just teach the scriptures. You see? Um, here's the problem. Here's the problem. When, when a leader is fueled by selfish ambition, there's no stopping them. This guy wants to be king. Now, I want you to check this out. So they give him 70 pieces of silver. He gets his pack going. He gets his, uh, he gets his money. Verse 5, then he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. There you go. This guy flat didn't miss around. See, here's the thing about people that are fueled by um, selfish ambition. They have no morality. They deny God. They deny his word. If there's no morality, then you can do Hey, listen, listen. If you can kill a baby in its mother's womb, then why can't you kill 70 guys that are standing in your way from being the head honcho? See, when life is cheap, life's cheap. If you can kill a baby, why can't you kill guys that are standing in your way? 
So now we don't, in our climate today, you can't get away with that. Not, not quite yet. Uh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, there are guys that get away with it. But, you know, generally speaking, you just can't start killing enemies. So we kill them other ways. We kill them by character assassination, you see. Um, what this guy did, this guy desired authority to such a degree. See, God didn't appoint him. He usurped authority. He went after the authority. He desired the authority. Sometimes, now, now guys, let's bring this home. We're all leaders in here. We're different kinds of leaders. We have different leadership positions. God has assigned us different leadership roles. But we're all leaders. Somebody's watching you. You're influencing somebody. Now the question is, what kind of leader are you? See, that's the question. What kind of ambition is in your heart? Uh, Psalm 75 says that promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west. But God raises up one and he sets down another. Are you willing to wait on God for his time? See, this guy, all this guy wanted to do was to lead. All, he didn't want to contribute, he wanted to be in charge. He didn't want to contribute, he wanted to be in control. God has a process for making his leaders. And can I tell you God's process for making a leader? He usually doesn't promote them early. He usually doesn't promote them when they're young. What he does is, is that God takes his men through really tough, hard, disappointing, heartbreaking experiences, and he takes them through the fire. And things get so difficult, and, and they'll get through one episode, and then another one will come along, and then another one, because what he's doing is he's testing them he's he's looking to see if 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 they will hold up in their integrity he's looking to see if they'll hold up in their obedience he's looking to see if they'll hold up when nothing's going their way if they'll continue to trust or if they'll get bitter and they'll get resentful and as God takes men through a series of tests, you see this in the life of Moses, you see this in the life of Joseph, you see this in the life of Paul, you see it through all these guys in the scripture. As God takes a man through that process, and oftentimes the man at certain points, he thinks he's finished and he thinks he's done. At a certain point, what God will do, God will raise that leader up. Because you see, selfish ambition has been obliterated in his life. I used to have a quote in my Bible that I got from Chuck Colson in his biography, autobiography. And it was just a little two-line quote. Colson said, uh, ambition, put it under your feet and grind it into the ground. Kill it. Kill it. Why would Colson say that? Because if anyone was ever driven by ambition, it was Colson. Youngest presidential counsel in the history. Youngest guy ever to be uh, commandant of the Marine Corps. I mean, this guy had one success, success, success. You know, the, the word is that, that Colson used, used to have a sign hanging in his office. And the sign basically said, when you got him by the balls, their hearts and their minds will follow. 
You didn't want to mess with that guy. Because he was very, very ambitious. He had power. He had prestige. He had the ear of the president. I mean, he, he, he was no one to mess with. And he wound up in jail because he had one file on his desk. One. Uh, Hillary had 300. He had one. And he went to jail. And it saved his life. See, he thought he had reached the top. He hadn't reached the top. God had a work for him to do. But God had to work in his life so that the selfish ambition was ground into the dirt. What do we say Judges is? Judges is the Frank Sinatra of the Old Testament. I did it my way. You can't do that. You've got to do it his way. So now Colson leads the most significant ministry to prisoners in the world. But see, God had to take that guy from the top, had to take him to the bottom, had to run him through the crucible, had to take him through the fire so that Colson would say, not my will, but thine be done. That's how God works in the lives of leaders. We get frustrated sometimes with God. We get, we get frustrated with his timing. How come things aren't going my way? This guy keeps emailing me from Oklahoma. Used to be in his Bible study. He and his buddy, they got a business school. You know, and, and he keeps, he'll email me every few months. You know what, man, it's going to work. We're just about to get off. He'll email me. Gosh, it's not working. These guys love the Lord. Well, you know what's happening? God's just putting them through the fire, and God's getting them ready. And, and see, it's trusting him for his time in his way. That's how God repairs a nation. That's how God saves a nation. That's how God saves a family. That's how God raises up leaders. So if you're in that process, be encouraged. You're right on schedule. He knows exactly what he's doing in your life. He doesn't want you to be an Abimelech. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're calling the shots, that you're running the show. Give us teachable hearts. Help us, Lord, to give the prestige to you, the thirst for prestige. Help us to give the thirst for power to you. Help us to give the thirst of the spotlight, the thirst for promotion. Help us to give it to you and to say, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, when you're ready, when you're ready, if it be your will. But if not, Lord, we're willing to live just a quiet life. Just put us on our assignment. Let us be faithful. You know what's best. You know what we can handle. Some of us, those dreams we have would ruin us if you gave it to us. You've been so gracious not to answer some of our prayers. Lord, you, one of the Puritans says, God, he said, God, God is so gracious. He's answered every one of my prayers or he answered what I should have prayed. Thank you that you know all things and you know what's best. We commit ourselves to you and our leadership. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.